Welcome to Gondrepreneur, helping Gondrepreneurs grow and succeed in every sector of the cannabis industry. Gondrepreneur will introduce you to the cannabis pioneers who are paving the way for future generations. Learn about the shifting landscape of the market directly from the experts and get to know some of the leading minds in the industry as they tell their story of struggles and success. Now, CannabisRadio.com presents Gondrepreneur. Hi there, and welcome to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Lowe's. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Mitzi Vaughn. Mitzi Vaughn is the managing attorney for Greenbridge Corporate Counsel, a transactional law firm entirely dedicated to cannabis industry clients. She is a founding board member of the National Cannabis Bar Association and is active in both domestic and global drug policy movements. She advises the cannabis industry regarding corporate and transactional matters, including brand expansion and multi-jurisdictional cannabis regulation. Before entering the cannabis industry, she was a law school and undergraduate professor. Thanks for being on the show, Mitzi. Glad to be here, Shango. Thanks. So today we're going to talk about interstate brand development, but to give us a better idea of the area of law we will be delving into today, would you give us a brief overview of transactional law and the kinds of services your firm provides? Sure. We provide counsel to the cannabis industry regarding complex transactions. And what that means generally are financing, purchasing equity, intellectual property protection, those types of services. Because in general, you need to know both cannabis regulations and sophisticated legal concepts to be able to integrate them to really serve the industry well. I, I can imagine that there were, at the beginning you've had so many new clients coming to you and you've just been able to say, well, no, we can't do that. We can't do any of that because in the early days, you know, as Colorado and Washington began cannabis licensing, you know, business leaders were trying to figure out the fastest way to go national, but the laws were intentionally designed to keep individual cannabis companies in their own states so that the feds wouldn't come and visit the state. They just want to be left alone to do their own experiment. What was going on in the early days that, that you saw was keeping individual businesses within the boundaries of their founding state? Well, initially, everyone was so heads down and frantic to try to get up and running that really expansion wasn't an issue. Really, it was a lot of interfacing with regulators and a lot of finance deals. How do we get the money to build our business as quickly as possible? That led to a lot of flawed agreements, unfortunately, and a lot of relationships that have since fallen apart. But once the relationships that were successful moved forward and they could take a breath and realize, okay, they had their license to produce and process cannabis. They had the money now to grow their business, even though they were constricted by regulations. That's when they come and they say, okay, what's next? We've gotten past the biggest barrier we thought we had, which was just getting licensed. What do we do now? 
I would think that being the the managing attorney at your firm and you are kind of the the filter for clients. I can imagine that in the early days you had a lot of people coming to you that are pretty much what we lovingly call yahoos, you know, people <laughs> who who don't really have the acumen, the investment or the know-how to get this done. And so you were spending a lot of time kind of filtering through who the best clients for your firm was going to be. Well, the best clients are the ones who want to learn. It's a very complex area, and I certainly never, and neither does anybody at my firm, hold it against somebody for not understanding how these regulations interact with typical business transactions. It's a very complex area, and so the kind of clients we look for are the ones who appreciate that and who are willing to be educated and who are willing to then integrate that knowledge into making their business more successful. So, you know, we have a lot of clients who come from very sophisticated business backgrounds who have no idea when they come into the industry how incredibly restrictive the regulations are. So early on, especially in Oregon and Washington, the goal was to keep the companies within the states. And But now we still have got a bunch more states that are moving towards normalization. What are some of the strategies used at the state level to keep the players within the state and to keep outside influences out? Well, initially, there was so much fear of the federal government, especially in Washington and Colorado, because, you know, we were really at the forefront of figuring out whether or not this experiment was going to succeed, whether or not the feds were going to lose patience and and come in and somehow shut us all down. And so, in an abundance of caution, regulators in those states really were timid and anti anything that was from out of state, whether or not it be finance or brand or really anything else, because they didn't want to have any appearance of violating that interstate commerce restriction. So regulators had a few choices. Regulators could, A, simply draft a regulation that would restrict it in the same way that they do for out-of-state financing in many jurisdictions, or B, because they're regulators and they have a huge amount of discretion, they can just say no. And they did for a long time. And so, for example, in Washington, I really had to go to the LCB and explain what a licensing agreement was and what it wasn't and why it didn't run afoul of Washington regulations. And that was a very slow and tedious process, as you can imagine, because they don't have to change if they really don't want to. And so you have to convince the regulators that it's first not a violation of the regulations, and second, actually in the best interest of the industry to adopt these models. I can almost imagine regulators with their finger on the button to allow interstate commerce kind of shaking it and listening to you going, are you sure we're not going to get in trouble with the feds by doing this? Because nobody wants to destroy their their in-state experiment, but at the same time, they don't want to be left behind either. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, you know, over time, you know, creative attorneys and business people began to, you know, what I think of as cracks in the state policy. But now after listening to you, it sounds like it's more like people are getting more educated and even Oregon decided to just go ahead and start allowing out of state investment. What do you see as the tidal change moment when the general vibe changed from, oh my God, we've got to keep everything in the state to, well, let's start considering how we might be able to play together. 
Well, it would be the everybody watching Washington and Colorado, frankly, uh, two very different regulatory regimes struggling through a patchwork of guidance from the federal government and trying to make cannabis regulation work. And so everybody else got to sit back and watch Washington and Colorado take the risk. And once it appeared that the federal government was going to let it go, the real sea change was further legalization. Oregon, Alaska, it's going to keep coming. And the more that states legalize, the more comfortable the regulators within states will be in, for example, allowing out-of-state financing. That makes sense. So, you know, for most of us, interaction between the state and the federal level seems to be kind of a black box where we're trying to do things at the state level and we're just hoping that it doesn't trigger big daddy federal government. But at the same time, we're not getting a lot of feedback other than, you know, the Cole 2 memo, which, you know, while we understand it, is also vague on a whole lot. In the last minute or so, can you give us an idea of what it what it's like for an attorney like you to be um, giving advice? to your clients, but also trying to read the tea leaves of the federal government about what they would tolerate. Well, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of research. It's a lot of keeping our fingers on the pulse of what's going on in D.C. And it's also making sure that clients are educated that even though cannabis is federally illegal, there are still a whole host of federal regulatory laws that you need to follow even though you're a cannabis business. Right on. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how to do interstate branding correctly. Uh, you are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gontrepreneur will return. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber Vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
We're back to help Gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is attorney Mitzi Vaughn of Greenbridge Corporate Counsel. So before the break, we were talking about the early days of interstate commerce for cannabis and essentially how there wasn't any, even though people really wanted to try it. And you talked a lot about how the regulators kind of had to warm up to the idea over time and with education. So in this segment, we're going to talk more about how things are working correctly now, and more importantly, how entrepreneurs can set up their agreements to do it the right way so that they don't um, injure their businesses. So with the doors to national brands starting to open, and I guess I should be specific, we're talking about cannabis producers and retailers. We're not talking about non-cannabis cannabis companies like selling grinders or vape pens or things like that. Those kinds of companies that don't handle the actual plant have got to deal with a whole lot less regulation. But if you're handling the plant and you're trying to set up a licensing agreement in another state where you can extend your brand and bring back Profits. There's a whole host of issues. So, Missy, I know that you have dedicated a great deal of time both educating the regulators and figuring out how to do this right. Would you break down what actually makes up a successful intellectual property agreement today and kind of give the path forward for entrepreneurs who are listening who are excited about taking their brand nationally? Of course. Intellectual property licensing agreements are the vehicle that entrepreneurs are using, as you said, to expand across state lines, but also to expand their businesses in state. You know, you are faced with state regulations that may restrict the amount of product that you can create, and licensing can't help you expand under those types of regulations. And so an intellectual property licensing agreement, it consists of, first of all, let's, let's parse it. Intellectual property in this case means your product. So let's use edibles as an example because it's the easiest to explain. So in, your intellectual property, if you're an edible producer, is not only that brownie, the recipe that created that brownie, but it's also your brand. And usually we're thinking about brands when we talk about intellectual property licensing agreements, but that's only half of it. It's what's inside the package and it's what's outside of the package. And so when you are licensing, you are licensing somebody's ability, if it's an edible, for example, to use your recipe and to use your brand, your mark, so your trademark, in commerce, and you are not the one actually producing it or selling it. And so these agreements lay out how that relationship will work. Because as somebody licensing your product, licensing your brand, your number one concern is not just profit, it's maintaining what you have built. So when you build this wonderful brand and then you hand over the rights to it to somebody else, you have to make sure that that somebody else is doing it right or they're going to destroy everything that you have built. And so you have to make sure that you have quality standards that those people are going to adhere to, that, you know, for example, they use the right kind of packaging. If you walk into a retail outlet and see your edible in substandard packaging, it's going to affect your brand out there 
being viewed by the consumer. So in the same way that you want to make sure that the brownie is the same quality, consistent, and of the same quality every time, you want to make sure the packaging is as well. Because as we know, the brand, a lot of it is the look. It's not only what's inside, it's what's outside. So that's the first part of this whole equation. The second part is policing it. So in order to maintain your brand, you need to not only make sure that your trademark isn't being used by others improperly, because then you'll lose the protections that you have gained with a trademark, but you need to make sure that, like I said, the quality and consistency are there. This is where people are falling into a trap. Because when you are too controlling of a licensee, in other words, if you go into their kitchens and tell them what ovens to use, if you go in there and tell them what supplies they need to buy, if you go in there and tell them how to hire people and how to train them, you have crossed the line into franchise law. And that is happening all over the industry right now. I think that a lot of the uh, you know entrepreneurs after they set up their first business, they see their new location, whether it be on the other side of the state or in the state next over, that it's like, oh, we're setting up a new office. And what you're being very clear about is that it is not your new office. You're actually giving rights to produce to someone else. And and now I'm hearing that you know I might actually be getting in trouble by trying to over-police the folks that I've licensed my intellectual property to. And I bet you that's kind of a sneaky fine line. Where is the line between licensing and being specific about how I want them to represent the brand versus going too far and seeking into franchise? So the real key here is the FTC's definition of a franchise and the most there's three prongs but for this discussion the most important one is significant control or assistance and this is what is tripping people up right and left and it it's scary when I read about these agreements because you see repeatedly oh we go in there and we install all of the equipment and it's just add weed and go for example, is one that I just recently read. You know, it's plug and play. Well, that's a franchise. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's no question that that is a franchise. And so even though you call that agreement an intellectual property agreement, it's not because you have wandered into franchise land. And that's important because the federal requirements and state requirements for franchise law compliance are burdensome. There's a ton of disclosures. If you accidentally franchise, you've got fines you need to deal with. There's a lot of compliance that comes along with the franchise that makes it very inadvisable to enter into, not to mention you want to do everything you can to keep federal oversight away from you because we are dealing with a federally illegal product. I see. So so as soon as you break into franchise, you've got two issues. Number one, it's overly burdensome in the reporting, but also suddenly you are being regulated by the feds because you're a franchise and you start running into legal issues that way. So you really want to stay lower on the radar 
by having an intellectual property licensing deal, which can be handled locally versus becoming a franchise where suddenly you have to bring the feds in and you're going to have them up in your business. Right. And you can, you can license your intellectual property anywhere. You know, there's no restriction. Well, I mean, there are restrictions in the cannabis regulations, but aside from that, it's not that you cross state lines and you trigger federal oversight in your intellectual property licensing agreement. What it is, is that, you know, you stay altogether away from franchise law that makes sure that there is no federal jurisdiction over that agreement. So, when it comes to franchise, there is no, you know, intellectual property licensing regulatory regime at the Federal Trade Commission. So, that's for starters. And, And earlier, you know, you asked, where's the line? And I I didn't really address your question, and I'd like to do that, because the line is not only should you not be providing the significant control and assistance by going into their operation, but the way that you police the quality of your product and the packaging is by doing point-of-sale testing. So you don't go in and find out how they're making it. You make sure that the end product is what it needs to be. And as long as the end product is what it needs to be, you can't tell them how they do it. Missy, that's not how anybody's doing it. I mean, I know. I talk to these people all the time. <laughs> they're going to the other, they're going to the licensees, they're going all through, they're, they're teaching their staff. They're <laughs> I know, I know, it's happening everywhere. And unfortunately, like I said, the information just isn't out there. And it's, you know, you need a franchise attorney or somebody who's familiar with franchise laws to be, even be able to identify this issue. So in the same way you wouldn't have a plastic surgeon take out your gallbladder, you wouldn't do one of these agreements, you know, have one of these agreements drafted by an attorney who wasn't familiar with franchise and intellectual property laws. They are not the same. Or that attorney needs to educate themselves. If, if an attorney is even involved, I know some people have just kind of written them up themselves. So, you know, you see the whole spectrum and the franchise law, the definition of a franchise is very clear and significant control or assistance is it's a sliding scale, but there are some things that are for certain significant control or assistance. I can almost feel so many audience members' faces just going white with, oh my God, after hearing that. But right now, we need to take another short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. After a short message from the sponsors who made this show possible, Gontrepreneur will return. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. 
educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to help Gondrepreneurs grow. You're listening to Gondrepreneur, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is attorney Mitzi Vaughn of Greenberg Corporate Counsel. So before the break, Mitzi was breaking it down for everybody that you cannot have an exceptional amount of control over the folks that you license your intellectual property to, or else you're going to get in trouble. And you know, I know from talking to these entrepreneurs and being involved with these deals as a consultant myself that almost nobody is doing it correctly by Mitzi's definition. So Mitzi, the impact of course is what happens? What's the fallout when people set up these agreements incorrectly? Who is it that finds out who's going to enforce it? And what does the enforcement look like? That is an excellent question. Um, Best case scenario is that nobody finds out and that everybody trucks along who's already done this and they don't have any real ramifications associated with their accidental franchise. Worst case scenario is that the Federal Trade Commission comes in and slaps a bunch of fines, um, retroactive and prospective. You can be banned from ever having a franchise, which might be okay because you shouldn't be having one in the first place probably. There are laws that apply to, you have to register your franchise. There are extensive disclosures, so you would have to go back and do all of those things or simply fold. It could just end your business because it's too burdensome for you to go back and undo all that you've done. So those are the some of the ramifications. Is the FTC on a hunt for these folks right now? Or is it just like if you're a bad actor, they'll use this as an excuse to close you down. Yeah, that's an excellent question because the question then becomes, how do I even get on their radar? You may not. If you upset one of your licensees, however, that licensee could go to the FTC and rat you out because Mm. if the FTC comes in, everything will be construed in favor of the licensee or in this case, the franchisee and against you as the franchisor. And so if your licensee gets disgruntled and wants to get at you for some reason, uh, the FTC would be the route to go. Not to mention, I'm not sure because we don't have any precedent of what the FTC would do in connection with a cannabis business that violated how the FTC and cannabis interact is a real unknown right now. You know, it's interesting because most of the time on the program, we talk about, you know, the entrepreneurs being at the forefront of these new technologies and these new extraction techniques and cannabis medicine all the time. But it's interesting to hear from your perspective how law is right on the fringe as well. You're delving into this outer space without precedent and you're kind of making up the law as you go. You must have to really explain risk assessment over and over again to your clients because they're is no black and white in a lot of these cases. That's exactly right. And so in general, when we're talking about risk versus reward, 
you have to look at things in these agreements and it's perhaps it's that some of these uh, entrepreneurs out there have decided that the risk is worth the reward in crossing this franchise line. Maybe it isn't necessarily ignorance, but it is definitely part of our counsel as attorneys at our firm that anything that might put you on the federal radar that is unnecessary is a bad thing. <laughs> you, know, you need to comply with all those federal laws, you know, the securities laws, that's something that we discuss on a regular basis with people. But if you can exempt yourself from a federal law, you should do it. So let's talk about getting my money. I licensed my intellectual property to a third party and I explained to them how I want things to go and, and, and I like their product that they're putting out. So everything is going well so far. I'm not a franchise, but I do want to get paid. And let's say that I set up my agreement for a percentage of sales revenue. Since banks are not handling cannabis money, how does the money find its way back to me in another state? Well, first of all, you generally wouldn't set it up as a percentage because that would make you an owner and trigger a lot of in-state residency requirements. <laughs> I just have to throw that in there. In terms of payment, generally the parties that are involved in these transactions or the licensors, so the people who own the intellectual property, have bank accounts. They are larger entities. They have been able to they needed that banking to expand to where they are. They've been able to access that banking through either organizations that have offered their services publicly or otherwise. So it's it's just like any other transaction. Because the money comes across state lines, it does not necessarily make it any more complex than paying your vendors down the street. I see. So it's more about for the licensor to already have a, an established relationship with a bank that they like. And then after that, the transferring is much easier at that point. The point is just to make sure you get a good bank to work with at square one. Well, and one can argue that, well, let me back that up. Generally, we advise that companies form a separate entity to license their intellectual property. And so that company is not actually touching the product, although it is obviously cannabis related. Mm -hmm. And so that can also facilitate these kinds of transactions. Interesting. It sounds like that little part there just on the legal technicalities of that could be its own show. But again, we are out of time. Mitzi, thank you so much for being on the show. This is an interesting topic area where I hear a hundred different opinions from a hundred different people. And after talking to you, I find out that almost none of them are correct. So I really appreciate you being on the show to share your experience. Thank you so much for having me, Shango. I appreciate it. You can find out more about Mitzi Vaughn and Greenbridge Corporate Counsel at their website, greenbridgelaw.com. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur Podcast in the podcast section at gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. You can also find the show on the iHeartRadio Network app, bringing the Gontrepreneur podcast to 60 million mobile devices. Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at gontrepreneur.com to find out how. Thanks to Brasco for producing our show. I'm your host, Shango Lose.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.